Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to once again tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you into the field, to those places where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that can change your life or at least bring you a little bit closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. So as you listen in, you may occasionally hear ambient noise in the background as I sit out here on my balcony here in Las Vegas, known to some as the hottest city in America, there's a leaf blower going in the distance, and they might come close to the balcony, and we might have to go inside, but right now we're going to see what we can do. One of the things that I discovered ever since I entered the working world, this is even when I worked for companies during those six years before I became a full-fledged entrepreneur, is uh, I'm going to say this as gently as I can. A lot of people in management roles are not equipped to be there. Some actually have no business being there. And that's what today's topic is going to be about. Uh, You're going to love this guest we have. You're going to love this topic. It's about the unparalleled plight of new leaders. And essentially, what we have going on is that the vast majority of leaders step into their roles with little to no guidance. Studies show that while 83% of organizations say it's important to develop leaders, only 5% have implemented plans to do so. So the transition from individual contributor to being responsible for the performance of others is fraught with challenges. Without a playbook, most new leaders flounder. New leaders aren't aiming to go from good to great. They're just trying to make it to the end of the week. So what the discovery is, is that what they they what they thought a leader's job would be and what it is are two different things. And I found in my own experience, so many people who were put into management roles, and as I said, had no business being there, that could be a temperament issue or a brilliance and passion issue, weren't prepared to be there. That was almost universal. And then combine it with the sense of hubris that often comes with first being appointed to a management role or promoted to a management or leadership role without being equipped, without having to back up based on as your qualification for management or leadership, that you did a good job as an individual contributor. But those are two completely different skill sets. And what's going to happen today is you're going to gain essential lessons that will enable you as new leaders to create higher standards for yourselves and your teams. And to guide us down that path, we have Bill Treasurer. He's the founder of Giant Leap Consulting and has worked with thousands of leaders in the United States and beyond, including NASA, eBay, Lenovo, UBS Bank, Saks Fifth Avenue, and many more. He has a new book out. It's called Leadership, Two Words at a Time, Simple Truths for Leading Complicated People. That was uh, released by BK Publishers. And it provides actionable and relevant advice to today's emerging leaders. Oh, boy. Bill Treasurer, come on in. The weather's fine. 
<laughs> hey, it's good to be with you, Adam. What a great tee up of today's important conversation. I look forward to talking with you and with all the folks that are patching into business creators. Oh, and let me tell you, is this ever a topic? We've never covered it on this show quite this way, but I've been waiting for somebody to come along who's actually done a deep dive on that, and that's you. So before we go in head first, as I imagine, a lot of our listeners have either been tossed in head first or have been subjugated to the authority of somebody who was woefully unequipped. We're going to change all that, by the way. What we want to do is we want to take a step back. Your background is very impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here in your presence, and this is my show. But before, <laughs> And I read off your official bio, great stuff. But let's take a step back and have you tell us in your own words something about your journey that's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, you know, so one of the pieces of my backstory that I hope provides some relief to somebody who might be floundering right now in a leadership role is that I got interested in the topic of leadership, and I've been dedicated to this whole field and practice for 30 plus years because I did a really bad job of leading, and one of the people I was leading told me that to my face. Uh -huh. He said, Bill, you suck as a leader. And this is some 30 years ago, and I got all offended because I was his boss, but I thought about it that night, and I, I didn't know anything about leadership. I just knew that I was in this role, and the only reference point that I had was my dad, and my dad was a short-fuse hothead, and that's how, that was my approach to leadership. So uh -huh. I started reading books on leadership and management and came across the term organizational development, and I got interested in the topic. I got better at leadership and decided to go through graduate school and, you know, Cast me for 30 years. Here I am talking to you on a radio show about leadership only because somebody had the courage to tell me blatantly to my face that I sucked at leadership. And that set me on my journey. So whoever might be floundering out there, whoever might be struggling in a leadership role, just know that there you'll be able to get through this if you buckle down and do the work of, of uh, that a leader, you know, demands to do. Yeah. My, um, my first practical exposure to this phenomenon is when I was in college and I had a part-time job working in fast food. Uh, our store was a designated training store for manager trainees. Hmm. So those who were going onto the assistant manager path spent eight weeks at our store and that's where they received their training on how to be a manager. And the, the story just repeated itself over and over again. I'd been there for three or four years and uh, myself and a lot of the other crew members knew how to make that place work to the level where really we and for routine stuff we didn't need management and then you'd have these these assistant managers in training who would pull out the rule book and seek to educate us on what our jobs are and <laughs> after about four or five times it got to the point where when they started this i would just say to them look I know a lot more about how this place works than you do. So you just go count potato expiration times and let me do my job. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this is the funny thing. And I didn't realize this was going on until afterwards. Um, our The general manager who actually had this, the title training store manager for which he got more money, uh, you know, little perk of that, he knew that myself and some other people in the crew were pushing back on the trainees like that. And he let us. Mm. 
Uh, they, they, you know, the trainees would go complain, try to get us in trouble and everything else, and he wouldn't do anything about it. Uh, that was his way of signaling to them that with management comes leadership. And to, mm-hmm. and to their credit, a lot of them fairly quickly got the message that it's a matter of looking at the practical applications of what it takes to run a fast food joint on a daily basis that often has very little to do with those procedure manuals made up by consultants who had never actually been in the store as a customer, <laughs> much less as somebody who worked there. I mean, they had these right. flow charts for opening procedures, flow charts for closing procedures. And it's like, this doesn't even match reality. Number right. one, <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was allocating 30 minutes for the entire opening prep procedure, which anybody knows even even on a light day took two and a half hours. Right. That's right. a lot of food. That's a lot of food you have to be prepared for. Remember, fast food, which means you got to have a cash shade in the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't you can't do that in 30 minutes. Uh so what I so in you know, looking at this retrospectively with years of experience and learning and coming to understand a lot more about the human condition than I would have been expected to know as a 19-year-old. I recognize that to a degree, these manager trainees were thrown into the deep end without the formal leadership training. And there was really nothing in their training that dealt with uh, how to be a leader, how to inspire, motivate, coordinate so mm-hmm. our training store manager who uh, believe me was a very interesting character may he rest in peace uh, had his own way of sort of working that into the curriculum even though they were mostly trained on uh, uh, how to know how many potatoes to put in the oven and uh, how to mark the expiration dates sure yeah. sure yeah they you know that's often happens when we move into a leadership role a lot of times we move in because somebody sees our technical or operational brilliance. They say, wow, that person really produces a lot. They do a really good job. They seem to know what we're trying to do here in our business. Let's now let's put them in a leadership role. It's thinking from the operational standpoint and the technical standpoint. But, you know, as you found out so much about leadership is the is that, you know, you're kind of like a part-time psychiatrist most days. Yeah. You, you, you know, somebody is upset about somebody said something and somebody's not pulling their load and I am. And, hey, how come their compensation is more than mine? And that stuff has nothing to do with operations. But that stuff is at least 50% of your job. But we don't teach people that stuff, right? We just teach them the operational and technical aspects. And when it comes to leadership, we sometimes don't teach it at all. We just give them the performance, you know, the manual that you talked about with all the operational detail and the flow charts and such. So it's not uncommon for a person to move into a leadership role and quickly, once they find out that they're having to deal with all of these people challenges, that they start to flounder and they start to question, should I even be in a leadership role? And they start to lose confidence. And at that point, they question, do I do I just need to go back to the non-management ranks? The good news is you can move through that and eventually you can find joy in leadership and you can start to become effective in leadership. But it's very common to quickly flounder after the honeymoon is over. Yeah, another short story and then a very a question I have for you that to me, uh, is actually kind of profound, but you might think of it as being you know, like, duh. But anyway, uh, I have a friend of mine who's one of my oldest friends going way back. And uh, he's about my age and he's been 
in automotive sales uh, for as long as he's been working. Uh, I mean, even when he was in high school, he was already selling cars. Now, mm. he, um, I remember when I used to see him a lot. Uh, he he lives far away now, so I don't see him all that often. But when I used to hang out with him all the time, I remember twice, and this is when he was in his mid to late 20s, he got promoted from the sales floor into management. Mm. And then within a few weeks, he was asking to be put back on the floor mm-hmm. because he got into management uh, once and then he was once bitten, but not twice shy and did it again. And he felt like basically a fish out of water. It's interesting you mentioned floundering, but the phrase he used was a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Now, in today's world, he is a manager. So I bring that up because it raises that question I, I said I was going to share with you is, is it possible that there's only so much that we can do to train? This is the two-part question. Is it possible there's only so much we can do to train leaders to lead? And is it also possible that they may just not have yet arrived at the season where they're ready for leadership and they need, and uh, and it's challenging for them to define when they're actually going to be ready to. I mean, as I said, my friend, uh, he twice went into to management then has to be put back on the floor but now he's been managing dealerships for years and these i mean since he's got stick to and and uh, longevity in the industry he's damn good because you got to be good to last as long as he has mm-hmm. yeah the, and sales is an interesting uh you know scenario because you've got somebody who's a great individual contributor probably making pretty dang good money to knows how to close the deal and they reward them by giving them a team and, you know, leading a team of people is very different than being a great individual uh, performer. So it could be a little of both with your question. I do, I do think that sometimes the time does have to be right. Sometimes you might be a little green. Sometimes they might, uh, they might thrust you in the first time when you're actually not ready and you're over your skis too much. I mean, it's okay to be over your skis a little bit. Um, but if you're way out over your skis and then you, you wipe out like the old wide world of sports, you know, image of people, somebody going down the big snowfall on the hill and wiping out, you might then get bit and and say, I don't even know if I want to do this. And so in his case, he went back twice to the line and, but something had to have shifted for him at some point. He, he probably maybe regretted or thought, well, that's my aspiration. I'm not ready, but I'm going to do the stuff that I need to, to get ready for some reason, you know, do you know that end of the story what what was it that took him to make the decision after getting bitten twice to say i think i want to try this a third time and then now he becomes successful do you know what it was that made him decide to do that i'm going to speculate guess based on my approximate understanding of the timeline he met the love of his life and he decided that he wanted uh for for him and his wife to live high mm-hmm I think I think I had a lot to do with it, and uh, and it was one thing for him to be a single guy who could uh, prowl the clubs at three a.m. Uh, <laughs> to not to to work from nine to nine at a dealership, but it got to a point in his life where if he wanted to have a marriage that lasted, a relationship that lasted, that uh, he that working nine to nine six days a week wasn't going to hack it, and right. uh, management is really the only place in in the automotive sales industry where you don't work nine to nine six days a week. Right. I'll bet, too, that, you know, sales is a pretty ambitious um, 
field in practice. It's one yeah. that's highly competitive. And I'll bet when he sort of let himself and maybe let some others down the first couple of times he was in a leadership role, that might have left a craw in his throat that he was like, I'm going to come back someday, which is very competitive. Yeah. And and then he you know has this other opportunity. Now his life uh, circumstances change, gets married, and it becomes a right a better time, a, a time that's more congruent with what his own needs and wants are. I'll bet he did it differently too. And I'll bet he benefited from those two burns the earlier time. You know, one uh-huh. thing I often will tell people is it's really good to have the experience of having failed in a leadership role. I, I wrote a different book about that because that leadership uh, failure can help season you. It can help humble you, right? Like the idea of humiliation, that little word in humiliation, humble, it's where you get humility is by getting humiliated. And sometimes, so it may sting that first time. And this is again, to any one of your listeners who might feel like I'm just not making it. And should I get off the Mm -hmm. line? Should I, you know, go back to what I was doing before? Then I, I would say, hang in there because any leader who is now effective and is now worth their salt and is now adding value probably started out from a place of lack of confidence and made some mistakes along the way. And that could be a really valuable experience. Yeah. And unfortunately, we still have way too much in our culture that um, failure is something to be ashamed of. Mm. I love what apparently is Mark Twain's quote. He said, good judgment is a result of experience and experience is the result of bad judgment. Yeah. I, yeah. I love, I love that quote. And uh, I can also quote somebody who used to be a friend of mine, uh, no longer is uh, for reasons, but uh, he, but I, you know, I take good lessons where I can find them. And he was uh, a supervisor in a call center. He was coaching somebody who was uh, missing their marks and uh, they were, you know, listening to some of the guys' recordings and uh, they, were, they just wasn't doing real good with the scripts and the upsells and everything. And uh, his employees, you know, got really frustrated with the coaching. And my former friend said to him, he said, look, the reason I'm a manager and you work for me is I fucked up a lot more times than you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And he, I, and he said, and he said it exactly that way. And it probably caused some of our listeners, maybe even you say, whoa, 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 what? Because he wanted to make that point very sharply that it's just part of the human condition that, and another way of putting that is you can't know what's right until you know what's wrong. It's a great way to put it. Um, You know, similarly, like building on that idea, somebody once told me that he knows that there's two kinds of leaders, those who have been humbled and those who are about to be, because everybody's going to have a humbling setback. So now that we can swear on your show, I wrote a book called A Leadership Kick in the Ass. Nice. The, I love the it. ass kick is when you get your ass kicked by life or circumstances or a reverberation of your leadership. It's a sort of a boomerang effect. I'm obnoxious to people. And then they three people leave under my leadership and they cite me on their exit interview. Or I get a 360 degree feedback that it smacks me right in the face. And it's because of, it's a reverberation of my own ego. Hubris is the, the word that comes to mind. And that's the, that's the opening. That becomes the moment where I can make what I call the holy shift. A holy shift. Holy shift. Ooh, <laughs> I like this. 
a, a shift away from me, my self-interest, and me starting to think about, I got to lead this team of people. I got to bring them with me. I got to lead towards a mission. It's not just about my own sharp elbows of ambition and what I want and what I'm not getting and my grievances. It's about how do I do right by these people? So I leave them better off and the company better off than I found it. And that's the holy shift away from me and towards them. Now my leadership starts to become really effective. All right, well, let's shift here a little bit because in the green room, when you and I were chatting before we started the interview, uh, you uh, gave me a few areas you wanted to make sure we covered. And I want to make sure they get them in. I think one of these is a, this is a really good place for it. Now, in your book, uh, you write about three areas of leadership fitness, and I would just love if you would share those with us now. You bet. So. Uh, a lot of times we feel burdened by leadership. We feel the heavy weight of leadership, the responsibility of leadership. And I think that if, if a leader can sort of just focus on these three main areas, and albeit they're large areas, but you'll be an effective leader. And those three areas constitute what I call leadership fitness. The first is, are you fit to lead yourself? So lead yourself, two words. And that's about self-discipline, self-analysis in terms of self-awareness, self-exploration, uh, knowledge of what my strengths are and the overuse of my strengths. That's about self-discipline, time management, prioritization. Am I handling myself well? Do I lead myself? If you can't lead yourself, then you're not going to be prepared to lead anybody else. So leading yourself, the first area of fitness. The second area of leadership fitness is leading others. And that's not about you. That's about staying vigilant to them making uh -huh. sure that you are building trust with them, that you're investing time with them, that you're spending time mentoring them, that you're sponsoring their training and sometimes doing the training, uh, that you are in-skilling them, making sure they're getting you know, more skills, and you're encouraging them, helping put courage inside of them so that they can face challenges. So that's the second area of leadership fitness, and I call it leading others. The third is you lead yourself and you lead others so you can get shit done. So that area is called leading work. So you've got to lead work. And that means leading schedule. That means leading clients. That means absolutely being aware of the budget and put pulling and pushing the levers of business that either make profit or reduce cost and always being vigilant to reduce risk. And that's right. different than leading people, right? So, so leading yourself leading others and leading work. If you focus on those things and make sure that you're always attending to them, they're going to help your leadership fitness. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and again, I think that a lot of that comes down to being able to understand the human condition and the fact that you're not, yeah, I mean, you can make flow charts or charts, Gantt charts, whatever those are. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how the actor Richard Gantt got into this. I love his work, but I'm not sure how he got into organizational effectiveness. But anyway, um, uh, that joke went over like a lead balloon. But my one, but my one about, but my one I told in the green room about, I'm so happy to speak with you. Give me a reason to remember why that one got a laugh. That one got a laugh right. Uh, but. But see, human beings are not something that you can quantify in exact numbers, regardless of science's advances toward being able to create predictive models. The bottom line is you're dealing with chaotic bags of chemicals who are right. affected by things you're never going to capture in any statistical uh, analysis, either retrospective or predictive, uh, simply because humans are what they are. And sometimes you'll have just right off the top of my head, you're going to have personality conflicts 
that don't make any logical sense because there's no reason for there to even be the conflict. But there's something about the people in that dynamic or trinamic or quadrinamic or whatever that uh, triggers one or more of the people in it. And it's just hard to get past that. One of the jobs oh. I, yeah, one of the jobs I worked in, um, uh, I was responsible for uh, a department that spent a lot of the company's money. So yes, community relations. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, and so I was in charge of, uh, of having purchase requisitions, uh, disbursements and such filed with the finance department. And I ended up in one of those conflicts uh, with uh, the person who received my paperwork. And it turned out that I reminded her of her ex-boyfriend. Hmm. So, okay, now I know what I had to overcome. And I, hmm. and I, and I ended up creating a, a good working relationship there uh, because I was willing to acknowledge that she was having a reaction to me based on something that happened to her that had nothing to do with me. It was being projected onto me. That was neither a good, and also to accept that was neither a good thing, a bad thing, or a right thing, or a wrong thing. It was just a thing. Right. So I had, and and one of my mentors at the time told me that I had an opportunity, not a challenge, but an opportunity to contribute to somebody else's progression as a leader. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at it that way, it actually became very simple for me to figure out how to make that dynamic work. And, uh, and I counted as one of my achievements, like, uh, like months, like it was like years later, um, uh, my boss was still asking me, Hey, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, has, has so-and-so given you any trouble lately? It's like, like, dude, we worked out a long time ago. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah I like that. Thank you for that story. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, one more one more thing I had to add. I also have to interject that um, I was 24 years old at the time, and uh, this was the first time I was handling paperwork uh, dealing with uh, dollar amounts in the five or six digits. I thought I was hot shit. Mm. <laughs> so I so I so I also had to so I also got a, a learning curve experience for myself and learning how to articulate things, uh, put forward positions and align my communications with the goals and aspirations of others. Mm -hmm. You you know, what that story brings up for me is leadership is a science of approximation. You're very rarely when it comes to leadership. Now, Now, maybe in some of the aspects of what you're doing in the job, like when you are managing finances and such, you could probably come to some pretty good answers. Maybe sometimes they have to be really precise answers. But when it comes to leading people, it's going to be an approximation because your approach with one person is going to be really successful and make a difference. But your approach with a different person, and it's going to be the same approach with a different person, you could get a wildly different answer. Some days people are whiny babies, and sometimes that includes you. Oh, as yeah, the, as the leader, right? And so you do like you try different things. You take the petri dish of work and you mix things up and you try different behaviors. You're trying to get a higher probability of a successful outcome. That's what you're going for. Yes, is you know, I'm trying to increase the probability that I'm going to be more effective next time I try whatever the thing that you're trying is, but you rarely come to a perfect answer. So there's a lot of ambiguity with leadership and you've got to persist through 
the lack of per- perfect answers, but you got to keep trying, right? And and you find eventually you do develop your own style, your own approach. You start to be able to have a high predictive value as to what situations I can get into and behave a certain way and get that higher probability outcome. And what situations should I avoid or put somebody else in? Because I know that I don't have a good track record of increasing my probability on those certain situations. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to segue. And one of the chapters in your book is is called Cultivate Composure. Mm. So in your own words, why is that important to leadership? I could make 100 educated guesses. <laughs> I bet you could. Uh, the you're, you're a smart guy. I can tell by your stories. The what I would say is this, that, you know, leader, when you're in a leadership role, you know, you remember the old story of the two wolves, right? You've got the yep. competitive dominant nature wolf who's hungry to get its way and wants to control outcomes and such. And then you've got the other wolf that's compassionate, wants to do right by the tribe or the pack and take care of the others and will give them their his portion of food and such. Those two wolves go on inside of us. They go inside of every human being. This is actually an old Cherokee story, right? And when you're in a leadership role, you could do a lot of damage when you're not leading with the right wolf. And so what I cultivate composure is you don't want to be the hothead. You don't want to be the freak out artist who quickly drops into freaking out with some, you know, challenge that's in front of you that if you look at it the right way, probably is an opportunity. And so cultivate composure is how do you start your day? Do you start your day by getting out of bed, eating a breakfast burrito, yelling at your kids, turning on the shock truck as you drive to work, listen to some political angertainment, and now you're <laughs> going to start your day? Angertainment. I love that word, by the way. <laughs> because, because that, because, and and I, I understand in our current uh, political context, that's actually being applied um, in, the, in, the, in the legacy media to just one person. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily fair to that one person, but and it's not who you think it is. But uh, no, it's it's the media itself. That's what. Yeah, that, 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 that's what that, that's what it is. That's what they're doing. They're creating the angertainment. I see the use of neurolinguistic programming to mm. um, to uh, spike these emotions, uh, mm. the use of presuppositions and headlines to mm. get people mad. Uh, I. Mm. I occasionally, I, I occasionally test myself. I don't really watch the so-called news. I do my own research on my own time from a variety of sources. But uh, sometimes, just by way of looking at it as a, a spectator looking to get educated in the technique, I'll commit myself to watching a few hours of programming. Another keyword, yeah, on one of the news networks, and just. Notice how they use storylines, cryons, and the words that the people at the desk are saying to get you infuriated about what you're hearing, and Mm. then wait, and then you're going to want more of this, and you're going to wait till the next program on the next hour. Will the next hour provide a counter view that might make you feel differently, maybe make you feel better, make you feel worse? But the idea is, and and I noticed this, I caught myself more than once physically leaning forward in my chair with my hands gripping the arms of the chair Mm. because Mm -hmm. that's the extent to which it was emotionally affecting me. Now, again, this is one of those things that's neither good, bad, right, or wrong. It's just a thing. Uh, But noticing how that had an effect on me, and I was conscious of the fact that it had an effect on me, and I recognized the techniques that were being used. Imagine how many people out there don't know 
that those things are happening or don't know that they may be causing those things to happening because how they've been programmed, whether you're in a leadership role or whether you're somebody who is being led. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Adam, what you're talking about is the dark arts of manipulation and intentional yeah. manipulation. And they do it because it works. Right. And so, you know, I'd ask you, remember that day you were gripping the hand of your seat after you watched a couple of hours of entertainment. Imagine yeah. if you then got in your car, drove to work and started leading people. What kind of leader would you be that day? Okay, so let's um so I'm this is not a political show, but as I like as I like to tell people, um I if I if people knew the full range of my political views, I wouldn't be invited to any of the parties. <laughs> it's uh I mean I I I give I give one example. In 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 2020, I used to I used to go into discussion forums and say that uh I I that uh, I was all for making America great again, and I fall and I believe that Black Lives Matter. It's like, how can you agree with both of those? And I would say, why can't I? Mm. And it right. was just, it was just, I saw people getting dumbfounded. That wait, you, 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 you can have both. You, 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 like they're not the enemy of each other. That right. they both might have valid points. They might both be both partially right and partially wrong. That they right. that there could be some middle ground or some mastermind effect where if you put those two together, they might create a result better than each could have done on their own. Right. Oh my goodness gracious. But with the angertainment and the use of these emotional tactics, it creates the idea of a zero-sum game that in order for one to be right, the other has to be wrong. But why? I mean, you I mean you, you 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 can't you can't have racial justice and border security. Come on, right? Yeah, yeah. I wrote a blog about it one time. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Yes. Uh -huh. Now we hold a single truth, right? Like the, it can be true. On, there's a piece of that truth on both sides of whatever the issue is that we're talking about. The um, so so cultivate composure comes into play so that you are able to start your day from. Honestly, I think that the best way to do it when I talk about cultivating composure is start your day with silence. Get some, mm -hmm. like I tune up my body. The first thing I do is I'm saying, what is the temperature in this room? The second thing is, what am I hearing outside? In my case, like, for example, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, when the windows are open to my office in the morning. Up the road, there's these two little twin girls who are about six years old. And where their dad goes to work, I hear them yelling out their window. I love you, daddy. I love you, daddy. I love you, daddy. And it's a great way to start my day. I'm listening uh -huh. to the birds. I'm listening to the dogs barking. I hear the two twin girls tell their dad that they love him. And, and then I read some literature, something grounding. And it's, it's non-secular. It can be religious if that's what a person wants. I, I happen to be reading right now The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. I've been reading it for the last year. One page a day. It's got a simple quote from somebody like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or Socrates and then a simple paragraph for me to consider for that day. That's after I've had silence and I've tuned myself up. And now I read a single page. It takes me about five minutes. After that, I do offer a word up to the higher power, whatever it is. Yeah. And now I'm starting from a place of composure in my day. If I could give the world one thing, if I had to, if I was the king of the world and could mandate one rule, it would be that everybody start their day with five minutes of silence. Instead uh -huh. of the angertainment and whatever the mental blast is, so that I can start my day in composure and and start to make sure that I'm 
working towards my better nature instead of my petty nature so that I'm able to think of others in a wholesome way. And then I can be a better leader for them than being sort of uh, all caught up in whatever grievance of the day that somebody else has told me to grieve about. Yeah. And I, and I think that, because you know, I look for connections that are not always readily apparent. And one of the silver linings of all the changes we've had in the past three years in our society, our culture, and our way of working is, and I'm going to lean on, on the third one, is you, know, you hear these things like quiet quitting, quiet firing, the great resignation, the great realignment. And I've been saying for pretty much all the time I've been in the workforce, um, either as an employee or as an entrepreneur, that there are a lot of people who had been put in workflow situations that were designed for the industrial revolution that were non-industrial. For example, knowledge workers in offices uh, often do not need to be there from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. with their hour for lunch and two mandated 15-minute breaks. Mm. It, that that doesn't, doesn't even make sense. And they don't even necessarily need to go to offices. Uh, they can do this from home. They can do this remotely. They can do a hybrid model. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities. And, and one of the, the silver linings that delights me is that that has now become a powerful force and we're seeing a lot more of it. Uh, my biggest frustration when we get into uh, when we get into the extremes of hot and cold in Las Vegas is my peak creative productivity time is in the range between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. Hmm. And I like to sit outside on the balcony when I do it. So hmm. when it's too hot or too cold to do that, it frustrates me. Mm -hmm. But the point, but, but what I like to bring up about that is that, you know, you, you take models like the industrial revolution model and apply it to the accounting department, which doesn't necessarily need to work from nine to five. What they need to do is get their work done on time. Uh, and, uh, you know, like even customer service doesn't necessarily need to be done in a dehumanizing cubicle farm. What we discovered when it went from, well, we don't want people to work at home because we can't micromanage them to you will let your people work at home or you'll shut your doors is mm. that the technology <laughs> has evolved to the point where you can have people in customer support or tech support roles who can do it from home, sitting on their couch, on their laptop, or even from a mobile device. They right. could even, they could even during a slow period, uh, go out and uh, walk their dog. As long as when that ding came in saying new phone call or new chat, they took it and they did, and they did the job. It didn't what, really matter. What's so cool about that. And this moment, right. Is in, to your point in the, you know, not, not too distant future, uh, or sorry, into in the not too distant past, like three years ago, before COVID, it was BIS. That was what people wanted, particularly if you were a boss, butts in seats. I yeah. wanted to make sure I could see your ass, count the number of heads here. It's the only way that I can know that you're going to be pr uh, productive because I don't trust you. That's what it was conveying. And then what happened in the COVID experiment is that all of us got put home, including those bosses who relied on butts and seats. And they soon found out, hey, not only are my people productive, in fact, probably more productive, but oh yeah, by the way, I'm productive too. Maybe there's something to this. I knew a guy who was a grizzled veteran in the workforce. He was an estimator in a construction company. This is the last guy on the face of the earth that you would have wanted saying that he wanted to work from home. He was the guy who 
I'm never going to work from home. I'm going to be in the office. Then he got sent home. And after probably six months, he's like, I don't want to go back. Why do I need to go back to the office? I can review an estimate better on my back porch, toss it to you guys, get on a Zoom than if I'm in the office been getting interrupted by everybody. So yeah. I think it, it caused a great conversion that marinated the heads of people who used to be resistant to it. A lot more people are receptive to it. And a lot of people also company-wide, let's just move towards Ebenezer Scrooge, said that, hey, we could save money on office space, right? So a lot oh, yeah. of places cut down on, on office space. Yeah. So so I bring that up because I think it goes to composure. So you have these people who don't need to be in industrial revolutionary setting, industrial revolution settings forced into industrial revolution settings. Hmm. So if you're that type of worker or employee or boss or leader or what have you, and your day starts where you're woken up at an unnatural hour by an electronic device, hmm. uh, you might have you might have slept through three snooze alarms. Now you're late. Uh, you got, you got the kids, you got to get them off to school. You gotta, mm. you gotta, you gotta spend a little quality time with the spouse in the morning. You got to get yourself in the mindset. And then you got, and then you have to do a commute on mm. roads that were designed to handle half the amount of traffic that's now trying to use them, mm. knowing that no matter what happens a- anywhere along the line, you could come up with some there could be some car accident. They could be doing quote unquote road construction again, or yeah. uh, you could just have a, a lot of sloth on the road, no matter. And despite your best efforts, despite adding an extra half hour of leaving even earlier, you still, you still uh, get to the office after dealing with all this stress. And you're supposed to be there at eight o'clock and it's eight Oh one. You're walking in and somebody's standing there tapping their watch. And now they want to have a 20 minute conversation with you about your ability to be organized. Right. While you're back, while your inbox is getting all full because they're taking your time. Explain to me, just, just, just tell me, just tell me, Bill, how is somebody who has already dealt with that before they have attempted to lead attempted to contribute, attempted to do their job, how are they supposed to hit that on any sort of winning streak? Exactly. In the book, I call it redlining. Yeah. And that's where you're revving your engine so far out into the RPMs that you're, you're going to blow a gasket and you're the leader. And if you freak out at decibel eight, everybody else is picking that up at decibel 10. They start uh-huh. freaking out too. And then the cortisol is running in everybody's bloodstream full of stress, ready to pop. And that's an unhealthy place to be, hence going back to cultivating composure. Look, the world is going to be insane. It is insane right now. And it, it is a uh, cattywampus. But that doesn't mean you have to be. That, in fact, that gives a greater responsibility to you as a leader. To I just call it centering. You know, you can maybe people would call it self-care. That's fine. Self-care. Great. But the idea that you don't have to get caught up in the crazy. In fact, you got to be the adult in the room when you're a leader. And so centering in the morning, making sure you're starting from a place of sanity. You know, I love the, this gets a little old fashioned, maybe a little pre-industrial, but Ben Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography had two questions. He gets up in the morning and would say, what good in the world shall I do today? And you could do that as a leader. You could contemplate all right, what are some situations going on that I want to bring the best of me and, and how can I try to affect positive change and increase my probability of a good successful outcome? And then at the end of the day, you reflect back on it. What good in the world have I done today? And so it's starting from a place of that as opposed to, damn, that other side, I can't believe those 
bastards. They did it again. I'm going to vote them out. You know. Yeah, and and what produ- and, and uh, what does that what does that do for you? Except on election day, <laughs> right? Because because uh, only when there's an actual election can you vote, right? And in the until, meantime, until, I'm just going to swear at the other side. Yeah, it's like what does that what does that do for you? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and 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 what I was going to mention earlier is so let's say you've already been fired up by that anger tainment. You've been put in that us versus them paradigm, yeah. and uh, and you know. Again, not a political show, but as I said, you know, if I if people knew the full range of my views, I'd be kicked out of all the parties. But if I were to have to pick, I see I can't even pick one. I guess you could say that uh, I'm pretty libertarian in terms of how much I want government involved in my life. Uh, none is best, and mm. I'm also and I'm also fairly liberal on a lot of social issues, which is actually kind of the same thing. Which is, who are we to tell people what to do? So then I have to, so then I'm a leader and then I have to deal with some subordinate who has uh, all these uh, virtue signaling signs in their cubicle. uh, And, uh, and, uh, and I know that they've themselves have listened to the opposite end of entertainment and Mm. they've just been spending an hour being told that uh, I'm an oppressor. Hmm. Gee, mm-hmm. what's that going to do? How 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 am I how am I going to be able to show leadership to somebody who views me as literally the enemy? Right. When they don't even necessarily know because maybe I've been smart enough to not let much of that show in the workplace, which I think is, you know, usually a pretty smart policy. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, so, you know, back to cultivate composure, right? So, yeah. so you can be a, a good not just a good leader. It will absolutely make you a better, more composed, more reasonable, more level-headed, way less petty, way less ego-invested leader. And then, then you can be the a person whom others can draw composure off of uh, in a healthy way. So it's, so it's really incumbent upon the leader to make sure, I mean, I've got a whole chapter on Know Thyself, but the idea of Cultivate Composure, which is a chapter in and of itself... It's so sad. Like, I never put that, uh, Adam, I never put that in any of my other books. I never wrote about the importance of, look, you got to get sane. <laughs> you got to, uh-huh. you know, do it. If, and if that means if you're in a meeting that triggers you or if somebody's in your face and you're feeling like punching them in the face, you, you got to go wash your hands under cold water. You got to take a walk around the building. You got to disconnect the moment. Uh, you've got to do whatever you can do to not get. Two sillies don't make a sense, right? So if somebody else is dropping their integrity, it doesn't become your excuse to drop yours. And when you're in a leadership role, it's incumbent upon you to maintain at least your own congruency with your own value system. And you got to know what your values are and stay congruent with those values. And that's called integrity. You can call it any, you know, that's the word that it really comes down to. And it's personal fidelity. It's like, okay, I'm going to be faithful and loyal to the better person that I know I am on my best days. And that's the guy or gal that I'm going to be when I'm leading. Right. I, I mean, I, I agree. I agree with that 100%. So, uh, you know, so the, so the next thing that I would, um, that I would be curious about, we're actually getting close to the near of our time here, but I think that there's one more point that I'd like to cover here, and I think this would be a great way for us to cap off here, is when you find yourself in a place where you are out of alignment, where you're missing the composure, where you're just, or, or you feel like you're 
in a leadership role, but you haven't been prepared for it. You don't have the support network for it. You don't have the backup for it. Uh, how do you get that joy back? How do you put the joy back in leading others? Mm. So it's a central question, right? I The first thing that I would do is, first of all, I would get disconnected from the intensity. And that might mean that you're going to come in late to work tomorrow. What I would do is I'd go for a long walk and have a long thought. And my long thought would be, why did I get into leadership in the first place? What am I trying to do? And a lot of times, because I'll ask this in my workshops that I do, Adam, oftentimes, like in a multi-year program, the first question I'll ask everybody is, what do you hope gets done by the end of your leadership journey? Most people will say that they want to leave a legacy, that they will want to leave people better off that they found them, that they contributed to that person's growth and development. And, and those are that's a noble purpose. And so go for your long walk, have your long thought, and reconnect with why did you get in this in the first place? What were you trying to get out of it? And then if you feel that your own value system is congruent with the place that you're working, then it's a question of what changes do you need to make to be able to be the leader that you always wanted to be and that your people deserve you to be. If you find, though, in your contemplation that your value system is incongruent with the value system of the organization that you're working for, either it's totally a different value set or they say that the values are this, but clearly everybody at the senior levels are behaving this way. Well, then you have got a choice to make. And my choice would be to put myself in wherever my values are congruent. That means I need to be in alignment with the value system of the organization. And if I'm not, and if it's not going, and if it's a question of that the organization doesn't have values, <laughs> then I'm going to be out of there. And if the values yeah. that they have aren't being led, then if I can't change it, because you're not, not a single person is not going to change the organization's culture. And if your values are out of alignment with that organization, then you got to you got to make a courageous choice and go and put yourself wherever you can thrive. And it might mean going out on your own like you did and like I did. Yeah. Well, uh, not too long ago, uh, one of the big uh, uh, soap operas these days is uh, the whole thing with Elon Musk having bought Twitter and all the radical changes he's making there. And who knows, by the time somebody's listening to this somewhere down the road, what could happen? There might not even be a Twitter anymore, because one of my theories is he essentially bought the infrastructure and he's going to turn it into something else entirely. Mm. So about a week or so ago, as of the date we're having this conversation, he announced that he was terminating their free lunch program. His accountants uh, did the mathematics, and uh, I think I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like they determined they were spending, you know, all costs included, you know, labor and everything, two hundred dollars per person per day to provide mm. those lunches, mm. and most of, and most of the people weren't even in the office to consume them, so they were throwing a lot of that food away. So I went on uh, Twitter and I just mentioned, hey, you know, uh, when I, you know, before I became uh, a laptop lifestyle entrepreneur, uh, I uh, I worked for three companies, one of which was an international conglomerate. And you know how many free lunches I got? None. Right. So, and that, that was the whole message. So mm-hmm. you that got an unbelievable amount of hate, which I thought funny, by the way. Um, you had all these folks uh, saying, who the fuck cares about your about your free lunches or whatever? And I said, obviously you, because you commented. And right. then there and then there were those who tried to get into my soul and find out if I had any integrity. It's like I have you in your feels, man, or or <laughs> the, or that they 
or that they would say, oh, okay, okay, boomer. Well, meanwhile, I'm Gen X. Okay, boomer. So I guess because you suffered, everybody else should suffer too. It's like I literally did not say that at all. They would say, yeah, that's exactly what you said. And then they would screen cap my tweet and say, look, you said it. It's like, uh, where did I say that I want other people to suffer? And where did I say I was complaining? In fact, did you read the first line where I said, before I left this behind, this was my experience? Mm. Yeah. So really, the reason I tweeted is I was doing a social experiment just to see what would rile people up. (laughs) And uh, it kind of proved my point that uh, people were looking at it through the lens of their individual truth and assigning attributes and meanings to what I said that weren't even there. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then, and 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 a, and a common reply was, "Oh yeah, and let, and let me and let me and let me guess, you uh, you uh, walked uphill both ways uh, to school every day." I said, "I walked uphill all three ways to school every day in the middle of a blizzard in July." <laughs> and then and and then another comment was like, "What what do you want a fucking medal?" And I say, "Yeah, I think I've earned a medal for the amount of people I put in their fields." <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, I'll just having fun rallying these people at this point. But it, but it becomes to the, it comes to the issue that, um, and I think this is very key to leadership. And I cover this in my own book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. That there's no such thing as the truth. There are mm-hmm. facts that can be scientifically, empirically, and otherwise proven. Um, however, truth is what we see through our own eyes through the lens of our experience, our education, our background, and the experiences that we've had, which is fair. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I also like to make the point that lie detectors, polygraph devices, and the scientific experiments that polygraph examiners use uh, outside the machines don't fact check. They look Mm -hmm. for signs of prevarication, which means manufacturing a narrative, which some people call lying. So mm-hmm. let's say, let's say you, let's say me, you, and oh hell, Elon Musk were standing on three different corners of a four-way intersection and two cars plow into each other in the middle of that intersection. The three of us saw it from three different angles. We could all give statements as witnesses. We could then all take polygraphs. Our statements and our statements tested by those polygraphs could be mutually contradictory and we could all pass a polygraph mm. because mm. of viewpoints. Right. And what I th- and what I found is important for leadership and my own development as a leader is understanding that I'm not seeing it through the same eyes as other people do. And to make sure that even in my moments of frustration to sometimes look at what I'm about to look at what I'm about to click send on or, or listen to what I'm about to say and leave room for the fact that the other person is looking at the same thing I am from a different angle. Totally. Right. I call it the beat. You've got to take just a beat before you quickly respond out of the trigger. You're going to get triggered on a daily basis when you're in a leadership role. Yeah. And when that, if you act out of the trigger, you're likely to act disproportionately. You're act, uh, you're likely to act out of your base nature, out of the dark wolf. Um, but if you take a beat and you've got to be intentional about it, sometimes that beat might have to be a long time. Sometimes you might have to take a, a full day before you respond. Uh, but if you, if you don't take the beat, 
you're not going to be able to lead in an adult-like way. And and then you're not being a leader, right? Then you're being a reactor. Yeah. Then you're then you're being the oppressive boss that you and I probably both had that all and that anybody I, I've had can point to, right? Yep. Yeah. And you don't want to be that guy or gal. And sometimes it's the composure that you're carrying, the value system that you're congruent with, being willing to take a beat before you respond. Yes, you can be thoughtful. And yep, you can sometimes be tough and should be tough. But if you can do it in a way that is clear headed instead of your own ego attachment or your own anger that was manufactured by somebody else to, you know, be compelled inside of you. If you can push all that aside and being acting out of your, and when I mean integrity, I mean your own, that meaning you're in alignment with the value system that you have already identified as being important to you. And you're consistent with that, then you are going to be effective. You'll be able to get through this experience of moving from the individual contributor to, you know, to becoming a leader is self-knowledge. And then this is, you know, the thing that I would leave you with, and it's a simple statement, maybe it's trite, but keep doing the next right thing, whatever that next right thing in front of you uh, and doing it with, you know, the highest integrity for yourself, then you're going to be fine. Absolutely. All right. So we are actually at the top of the hour and you have an invitation for our audience, which I'm going to share on your behalf. Everybody who's listening, do this now. Go to www.giantleapconsulting.com forward slash two words. And that's the number two, not the word two. www.giantleapconsulting.com forward slash two words and check out Bill's book. It's called Leadership two words at a time. You can download a a sample chapter. He's got resources for you. Um, You can get more of the two word essentials. Uh, There's there's also opportunities to uh, see some great infographics with some some great quotes on it. And uh, you can also acquire the book on leading online retailers like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and possibly more by the time you listen to this that uh, you just never know. But uh, make sure to check that out. That's www.giantleapconsulting.com forward slash two words. I'm going to pick up a copy myself. I'm looking forward to it. And with that, Bill Treasurer, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Adam, this is the most, uh, this is the most fantastic interview we've had in a long time. So thanks for the time. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.